that he is a male and not pure-blooded, he is exactly like our own fat, freckled Cocker Spaniel, who was gloriously won in a raffle by the father in our family. The house, which is called the Four-Story Mistake, is made out of several queer old interesting houses that I have seen, and is set in the kind of country which I have enjoyed the most, country with plenty of woods, hills, streams, and valleys. Wishing has played a large part in these stories, too, as you can see. The Melendies have and do all the things I would have liked to have and do as a child. There are plenty of them, for one thing, and I was an only child. They live in the country all year round for another, and I lived in the city for most of it. They discovered a secret room, built a tree house, found a diamond, escaped from dangers, effected rescues, gave elaborate theatrical performances at the drop of a hat, got lost, and did many other striking things, all of which I would have liked to do. So the Melendies, you see, are a mixture. They are made out of wishes and memory and fancy. This, I am sure, is what all the characters in books are made of. Yet, while I was writing about these children, they often seemed to me like people that I knew. And when you are reading the stories of their trials and adventures, I hope that you, too, will sometimes feel that they are real. Elizabeth Enright, 1947 Chapter 1. Saturday 1. It would have to rain today, said Rush, lying flat on his back in front of the fire. On a Saturday. Certainly. Naturally. Of course. What else would you expect? Good weather is for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And rains for Saturday and Sunday. And Christmas vacation and Easter. Oh, Rush, do stop grousing, said Mona, turning a page peacefully. She wasn't even listening to what he said. All she heard was the grumble in his voice. But it isn't enough just to have it plain rain, continued Rush in the same tone. Oh, no. Today it has to go and be a sousing, slopping, pouring, wet kind of rain that you can't do anything about, not even if you put on a lot of truck-like rubbers. He was quite right. It was a very wet rain. It plinked and splashed and ran in long, curly streams down the skylight. The windows were speckled and running, and occasional drops even fell down the chimney and hissed into the fire. All the city sounds that could be heard above the rain were wet sounds. The long whish of passing automobiles, damp clopping of horses' hooves, and the many voices, deep or high or husky, that came hooting and whistling out of the murky rivers at either side of the city. It is disgusting, agreed Randy wholeheartedly from the trapeze where she was sitting. There's nothing to do. But Oliver took no part in the discussion, for he was perfectly happy. He was drawing pictures at his own little table, which had been Mona's little table first, and then Rush's and then Randy's, all depending on who was small enough to fit at the time. He was drawing with his whole being, red in the face, tongue between his teeth, feet wrapped around chair legs. It was intensely hard work. The pictures were of battleships, only they all looked exactly like teapots because they had such big spout-shaped bows and great steamy plumes of smoke coming out of the tops of them. But Oliver was very pleased with them, and whenever he made an especially good one, he stuck it into the wall beside him with a thumbtack. There were about seven pinned up already. There were four Melendi children. Mona was the eldest. She was thirteen and had two long, thick, butter-colored braids that she was always threatening to cut off. Rush came next. He was twelve. 
dark, with mussy hair and a look of mischievous wickedness. Miranda, always called Randy, was ten and a half, with dark, untidy hair like rushes. And Oliver was the youngest, six years old, a calm and thoughtful person. The room in which they were sitting might have been called a playroom, schoolroom, or nursery by most people, but to the Melendies it was known as the office. It was at the very top of the house, so that they could make almost all the noise they wanted to, and it had everything such a room should have, a skylight, and four windows facing east and north, and a fireplace with a basket-shaped grate. The floor was covered with a scarred red linoleum that didn't matter, and the yellow walls were encrusted with hundreds of indispensable objects. Bookcases bursting with books. Pictures both by the Melendi children and less important grown-up artists. Dusty Indian war bonnets. A string of Mexican devil masks. A shelf of dolls in varying degrees of decay. Coats and hats hanging on pegs. The leftover decorations from Mona's birthday party. And other articles too numerous to mention. In one corner of the room stood an old upright piano that always looked offended for some reason, and whose rack was littered with sheets of music all patched and held together with scotch tape. In addition to various chairs, tables, and toy cupboards, there was a big dingy sofa with busted springs, a blackboard, a trapeze, and a pair of rings. That was all, but I think you will agree that it was enough. The Melendies seemed to go on and on collecting precious articles that they could never bear to throw away. The office was their pride and joy, and what it lacked in tidiness, it more than made up for in color and comfort and broken-down luxuries, such as the couch and the piano. Also, it was full of landmarks. Any Melendi child could have told you that the long scars on the linoleum had been made by Rush trying out a pair of new skates on Christmas afternoon, 1939 or that the spider-shaped hole in the east window had been accomplished by Oliver throwing the milk of magnesia bottle, or that the spark holes in the hearthrug had occurred when Mona tossed a bunch of Chinese firecrackers into the fire just for fun. Melendi history was written everywhere. "'There's that leak again,' said Rush, in a tone of lugubrious satisfaction. "'It's getting bigger than it was last time, even. Boy, will Cuffy be burned up!' He lay staring at the ceiling. It's a funny shape, he remarked, like some kind of big fat fish. And there are lots of other old dried-out leaks that have funny shapes. I can see a thing like a heart, and a thing like a baseball mitt, and a kind of lopsided greyhound bus. You've missed Adolf Hitler, though, said Randy, thumping down off the trapeze and lying on the rug beside him. See up there? That long, fady line is his nose, and those two little chips are his eyes, and that dark place where you threw the plasticine is his mustache. I'm going to throw some more plasticine and make it into George Bernard Shaw, said Rush. Who's he? inquired Randy. Oh, a man with a beard, said Rush. I'd rather look at him than Hitler. Mona put down her book. George Bernard Shaw is a playwright, she said. My heavens, don't you even know that? He wrote a play called St. Joan, all about Joan of Arc, that I'm going to act in some day. I bet that's why you were walking around your room holding the curtain rod out in front of you yesterday. You had kind of a moony expression, and you kept talking to yourself. I thought to myself, she's gone goofy at last. Rush shook his head and laughed appreciatively. But Mona didn't get mad. 
She just flapped her braids and said, I wish you'd stop spying around. It's getting so there's no place I can practice my acting except in the bathroom. All the Melendies knew what they were going to be when they grew up. Some of them were going to follow several professions. Mona, of course, had decided to be an actress. She could, and did, recite yards of poetry and Shakespeare at the drop of a hat. Randy was going to paint pictures and be a dancer. Rush was going to be the best pianist in the world, and a great engineer as well, the kind that builds suspension bridges and dams and railroads. Oliver was going to be an engineer too, but he was going to be the kind that drives trains. It was nice to have it all settled. Meanwhile, they got along very pleasantly just being children. It was sad that they had no mother, but they did have father, and he could not have been improved upon as a parent. And there was Cuffy, dear Cuffy, who was housekeeper, nurse, cook, and substitute mother, grandmother, and aunt. One couldn't even imagine the house without her in it. She had always been there, and it seemed as though she always would be. Her real name was Mrs. Evangeline Cuthbert Stanley. But ever since Mona, at eighteen months, had solved the problem with Cuffy, she had been called nothing else. She was fat in a nice, comfortable way. Fat enough to creak and puff when she went up and down the stairs, but not so fat that she had no lap to sit on. She had a nice, comfortable face, too, wrinkles and round cheeks, and teeth as regular and gleaming as the white keys on a piano. Late at night, if you had a stomachache or a bad dream, and woke Cuffy up to tell her about it, she looked different, though still nice. Her front hair was all curled up in little snails on the top of her head, while her back hair hung down in a big gray mare's tail. Her face looked rather fallen in, and she spoke distantly as though inside a cave, because there on the floor...